0: During the Advent season, we once again pause to reflect upon the greatest gift mankind has ever received, which is the hope of liberation from sin, death, and the tyranny of man. We're all coming, reading, coming from Genesis, Genesis and chapter 1, the book of beginnings, Genesis and chapter 1, the first four verses, as God opens up the scriptures to us, Genesis chapter 1, one through four. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning, by inspiration of God. Moses declares this: In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void; and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, "Let there be light." And there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. The evangelist Luke, writing in chapter 24, Luke in chapter 24, the first 27 verses, the first 27 verses, by the same Spirit that moved Moses, so does the Spirit move Luke, to record the vindication of the Son of Man before men. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, there came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in, and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, Two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulcher, and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter, and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished which were early at the sepulchre, and when they found not his body they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive, and certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulchre, and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy inerrant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Notice verse 27. And beginning at Moses... And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now to begin at Moses was to begin at the very beginning of the Pentateuch. Jesus is revealing to these men on the road to Emmaus exactly what the totality of the scriptures are in one very important verse in verse 27. This verse, tells us that the entirety of the Old Testament points to the first coming of Christ. To view the Old Testament as a prophetic crystal ball explaining the end of the world is to misunderstand the Scriptures. The Word of God, written in its declarative fashion and revealed in the writings of the patriarchs and the prophets, testify and point to the Word made flesh. It's pointing to the first advent. The Old Testament is therefore the anticipation of the Christ of God, the coming of the Christ of God. Genesis 1, as far as all of the scriptures of the Old Testament are concerned, is the sum total of the anticipation of the Christ of God, His first advent. Jesus is declaring here that He alone has and is given preeminence in the entirety of the Old Testament canon. To read the Old Testament is to read about the Christ. Jesus, therefore, is telling these men and revealing to their hearts that the totality of the Old Testament scripture is all about him. And he begins at Genesis chapter 1. In fact, he pointedly tells the unbelieving Pharisees that Moses had clearly spoken of him in his Pentateuch writings. In John chapter 5 and verse 46, notice he says this, for had ye, speaking to the Pharisees, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he, Moses, for he wrote of me. He goes on to tell them in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And when they protested, Jesus stated clearly that he was the very God of Genesis 1, the creator, the lawgiver, judge, and king. Notice John eight fifty seven. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, notice the phrase, I am, the great I am that spoke even to Moses. Reverend Hodgins explains, he says, with regard to our Lord's reference to the book of Moses, the testimony is emphatic. It was no mere passing reference to them. The whole force of the argument, again and again, lies in the fact that he regarded Moses not as a mere title by which certain books were known, but as personally the actor in the history which they recorded and the author of the legislation which they contained. The whole of the Old Testament scripture is crafted in such a way as to be a divine anticipation of the coming Messiah who would deliver his people from their sin and the sin-cursed world by his incarnation in 7 BC. Hodkins again explains, he says, Looking forward into the future from the earliest ages, God's servants saw one who was to come. And as the time approached, this vision grew so clear that it would be almost possible for us to describe Christ's life on earth from the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures, of which himself said, they testify of me. So what the pastor is saying is, if you were to read the Old Testament, you could almost, to the almost the the minutest detail, find in those scriptures the description of the entirety of Christ's life on earth. He continues, there was one central figure in israel 's hope. the work of the world 's redemption was to be accomplished by one man, the promised Messiah. It is he who was to bruise the serpent 's head, according to genesis three fifteen He was to be descendant from Abraham and from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah looked forward and saw first a great shining light upon the people that walked in darkness in isaiah nine two as he Gazed, he saw that a child was to be born, a son was to be given, and with growing amazement, there dawned upon him these names as describing the nature of the child, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He continues, There dawned upon Isaiah the consciousness that this promised one was none other than God manifest in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And now... All the prophets, one by one, fill in the picture, each adding a fresh, vivid touch. The prophet Micah sees the little town where Jesus was to be born and tells us it is Bethlehem. Isaiah sees the adoration of the Magi. Jeremiah pictures the death of the innocents, and Hosea foreshadows the flight into Egypt. Isaiah again portrays his meekness and gentleness and the wisdom and knowledge which Jesus manifested all throughout his life from the beginning of his talking to doctors in the temple. Again, when he cleansed the temple, the words of the psalmist come at once to the memory of the disciples, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Isaiah pictured him preaching good tidings to the meek, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives and giving the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The prophets foresaw something of the character and the extent of the Savior's work. The light that was to shine forth from Zion was to be for all the world. Jew and Gentile alike were to be blessed. The Spirit of God was to be poured out upon all flesh and all the ends of the earth were to see the salvation of God. This was the anticipation of the coming of the Son of God, His person, His work, His victory, His conquest, and His covenant dominion inheritance. And so Jesus begins by telling those on the road to Emmaus, He begins with Genesis. He begins with Genesis to declare himself to the world as the light of the world. In fact, Jesus himself, if you want to look at Jesus himself, Jesus himself is the Genesis. He is the Genesis of creation. He is the beginning one. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Dr. Joseph Moorcraft observes, he says, Genesis, along with the rest of the Bible, is the self-revelation of the living God. The Reverend SG De Graff observes this he says quote the mediator was operative throughout the old testament era His work did not begin at the start of the New Testament. He already penetrated the Old Testament history, moving among the people in shadows in order to reveal Himself. Everything is full of Him. How wonderfully the Scriptures open themselves to us when we focus on the Mediator. And I would add this, when we focus on the Mediator within the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, The word Genesis itself means origin or beginning. It is the declaration of the world's beginning and all that it contains. And because it is the declaration of the origin of all things, it is the book which defines all things by the originator of all things. So we think about Christ as the genesis of all things, who originated all things. And so not only is Jesus the genesis or the beginning one of creation, everything that exists originated in his mind. Every institution, every structure of society, every civil realm that we live in was originated in the mind of Christ and by Christ. Henry Morris explains it this way. He says, quote, The book of Genesis gives vital information concerning the origin of all things and therefore, and this is important, and therefore the meaning of all things, which would otherwise be forever inaccessible to man. The meaning of all things. What it means to be a man. What it means to be a woman. What it means to be just and righteous. The meaning of all things. And when man seeks to undermine the meaning of all things, he is seeking to undermine the Christ of God. Genesis begins with the origin of the universe as it is contained within the confines of time. It details the origin of time, space, and matter, within a detailed, organized system which is very complex. It speaks of the origin of light, darkness, plant life, animal life, human life, marriage, evil, language, government, culture, nations, the origin of religion, and the origin of a chosen people. As Henry Morris observes, he says, the book of Genesis is the foundation of all true history. But as we shall see, the book of Genesis does not only declare the origin of all things, but more importantly, it declares the originator of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, to argue against what the originator of all things has decreed is to argue against the originator. To redefine what the originator defined, what the original deity defined, is rebellion. And it will be met with the vengeance of God. The Genesis account is the testimony of a personal creator who created everything in the world with a specific purpose and a specific goal from the God who originates and orchestrates all historical events according to his decree by his providential orchestration, his providential action in time, space, and history. And this is what Paul was explaining to the Colossians. When he said to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Notice the comprehensive list. Thrones, dominions, civil realms, magistrates. All things were created by him and for him. In other words, everything was for him. And he is before. He is the originator. He is the creator. He is the Genesis. He is the Alpha before all things. And by him, all things consist. John is careful to yoke Genesis chapter 1 with his opening remarks of his gospel account in order to point back to the origin in Genesis chapter 1. Now John could have started anywhere in John chapter 1, but he didn't. He began with, In the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 1, he points back, he says, listen, in the beginning, let's go back to the beginning, this is where the the Christ has been anticipated from the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him, without the originator, without the genesis of all things, was not anything made that was made. John adds to this miraculous event by defining the Genesis God who created the universe in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John accomplished these two things. In these two verses... He first points back to Genesis. And by pointing back to Genesis, he sets forth the infinite distinction between the Creator and the creature. Let me say that again. There's an infinite distinction between the Creator and the creature. We are not God. Man is not God. And I know that sounds so ridiculous Ridiculously stupid and simple, but I must reiterate man is not God. So there's this distinction between God the Creator and His creation. Dr. Joseph Moorcraft explains once again. He says, In the very first words of the Bible, a clear distinction is made between God the Creator and God's creation. The Creator-Creature distinction, which distinction must never be forgotten, nor laid aside for even a moment. The author Richard Pratt Jr., in his book, Every Thought Captive, says this, this distinction between the independent God, the Creator, and the dependent creation, creature, is one of the fundamental differences between Christians and non-Christians. Christians Christians strive to see everything in light of creation's dependence on God, while the non-Christian tries to deny creation's dependence. Every person who is not trusting in Christ for salvation fails to account for the creator-creature distinction and somehow puts God and his creation in mutual dependence on each other and ascribes to creation a degree of independence. The second thing that John accomplished in these verses, this second reality that John declares is the intimacy between God and his people, even in the face of the creature, creator distinction. There's still this intimacy. Although, There's a distinction. There's an intimacy. And in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt. He tabernacled. This is the clear testimony of the love of God, the sovereign creator, for the people of his election, his creation. Both the Hebrew writer and the apostle explain such an intimacy. So it's, it's an amazing thing. There's this distinction, but there's this intimacy. Note what the Hebrew writer, as well as the apostle, says... To explain this intimacy while maintaining the creature creator distinction. Note the phrase they use, yet without sin and though it not robbery to be equal with God. So in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Notice the intimacy, but notice the distinction in all points tempted like as we yet without sin. Notice the distinction. Philippians 2, 5 and following. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Not like men, but in the likeness of men. Notice the intimacy. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So this distinction... So important was this distinction that it's made over and over again during Christ's ministry. Notice John eight twenty three and 24, verse 28 and then 58. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above, ye are of this world, I am not of this world. Notice the distinction. Eight twenty four of John. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Notice the distinction. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. A distinction. I and the Father are one. Basically, is what he says in John 8:58. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am God. It seems as if John, in particular, was given a clearer, more precise grasp on the correlation between the the genesis of all things, the originator of all things in the book of Genesis and the culmination of all things in the book of Revelation. Now notice how John in John chapter 1 connects the Genesis account. But then he's also given the task of writing the book of Revelation. Notice the correlation and the changes. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 4, you've got the division of light and darkness. In Revelation 21:25, no more night, no more darkness. Genesis 1:10, you've got the division of the land and the sea, and in Revelation 21:1, there was no more sea. Genesis 1:16, you have the rule of the sun and the moon, the timekeepers, but in Revelation 21:23, you have no need of the sun or the moon, because Christ is going to be the light. In Genesis 2:8-9, man is prepared in the garden. He's cultivating it. Preparing the garden, in Revelation 21, man is not only a prepared garden, but he's a prepared city. He goes from being a gardener to being the temple. In Genesis 2.10, you've got a river flowing out of Eden. In Revelation 22, verse 1, you have a river flowing from God's throne. In Genesis 2.12, you have gold in the land. In Revelation 21, you have gold in the city. In Genesis 2.9, you have the tree of life in the midst of the garden. In Revelation 22.2, the tree of life is throughout the entire city. In Genesis 3, 8, 17, and 19, you have God walking in the garden. In Revelation 21, 3, you have God dwelling with his people. You've got the cursed ground, you have thorns and thistles, but in Revelation 22, 3, you have no more curse. Then you have daily sorrow in Genesis 3:17, but in Revelation 21, 4, you have no more sorrow. Then you have Genesis 3:19, sweat on the brow, and then returning to the dust. But in Revelation, you have tears being wiped away. No more no more tears, no more sweat, no more death. In Genesis 6, 5, you have evil continually. But in Revelation 21, 27, you have nothing that defiles. In Genesis 3, Satan is opposing. But in Revelation 20, verse 10, Satan is banished. In Genesis 3, 20. 3 and 24, you have man banished from the garden, but in Revelation he's free to enter into the city. He's kept from the Tree of Life in Genesis, but he accesses the Tree of Life in Revelation. And then in three fifteen, the Redeemer is promised, but in Revelation, the redemption is accomplished. So each of these transitions from the original old world to the culmination of the new world are All find their place in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at his incarnation, Advent, and his final victory at the resurrection. Now, to deny that Christ has been totally victorious in time and in history is to deny the very reason why he came. In other words, he was not anticipated throughout the Old Testament as the failure, but as the conqueror. Thus, Genesis is the anticipation of the covenant promise culminating in the divine person and victorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider how the book of Genesis begins. In the beginning, God. The beginning of the universe starts out with the creation of time. It creates a world of that is going to be constructed within the parameters of time. It is the creation of time by God who himself is the beginning one. The Hebrew word used for beginning can also be translated as first. And it is here where God identifies himself as the beginning one, who is both the first and the last. Isaiah uses the very same Hebrew word as in Genesis 1-1 to identify God himself. Notice Isaiah 44:6. 6 Thus saith Yahweh the King of Israel, and his Redeemer Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the Genesis, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. In Isaiah 48-12, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, am I called? I am he, I am the Genesis, I am the first, I am the beginning one, I am also the last. So notice, he's identifying himself as the beginning one of all things. John identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the God of this Old Testament declaration in the book of Revelation as the arche, which means the first or the principal one. The, the first principle, in other words, of all things. The God of first causes, as we say in the theological realm. The God of first causes who is the one who commences all things from nothing. He begins all things from nothing because he is the genesis of all things. The translators, however, interchange the words first and beginning, yet the very same Greek word is used for both first and beginning. Notice Revelation 1.17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the Arche, I am the beginning one. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the genesis of all things, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Notice the reference there to time, the past, the present, the future, was, is, is to come. In Revelation 3.14, and the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the Arche, the genesis of the creation of God, the originator of the creation of God and in Genesis 21, 6 and 22:13, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so the Arche, this Genesis, this originator of all things, the first one, the beginning one, is Elohim. It is God himself. Dr. Moorcraft again weighs in. He says, quote, The eternal God who created the universe is called Elohim. This name of God reveals God as the Almighty God, the Omnipotent God, the Strong and Mighty One. Elohim is a plural noun, and I believe the plural noun is speaking of the Triune God. He continues, Elohim is a plural noun denoting not only fullness of power, but plurality within the Godhead, that is to be understood as the Trinity. The creator of the universe is not an impersonal force or a power that pervades everything. He is a living person who can speak, plan, rest, and ask questions. He made man in His image to have fellowship with Him. Elohim is the infinite personal God. End quote. And you think about that, Elohim a personal God. The use of the title Elohim rather than Adonai or Yahweh is significant. Adonai means Lord or Master. Yahweh is His covenant name. Now, it seems as if whenever God identifies himself as Yahweh, Messiah, Lord, or Savior, He is usually speaking to his people in a covenant fashion, a very intimate fashion. But when he specifically refers to himself as Elohim, he's often addressing the entire global order. So by the title name Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God in the plurality, God speaks to men in a general fashion. And he does this in order to show them that he alone is God and that there is a creator-creature distinction. In other words, I am Elohim, you are not. And it is this distinction that is impressed upon the human race whenever God uses the title Elohim. We see this in a number of passages. In Psalm 46, verse 10, we read this. Be still and know that I am Elohim. I will be exalted among the heathen and I will be exalted in the earth. In Psalm 50, he rebukes the apostates by reminding them of the creature-creator distinction that he alone is the almighty creator God. Notice, he is the Elohim of Genesis 1. He is the beginning one. Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am Elohim, even thy Elohim. In Ezekiel 28, 9. wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am Elohim? In other words, will you, man, say before God, who is ready to curse you and kill you, that you're God? No, you're not God. There's a distinction between man and God. But thou shalt be a man, and no God, in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Notice how God is emphatic about making sure that man never thinks that he is God. Let me read it again. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man, and no God, in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Now God sometimes uses the Hebrew word el form of Elohim, to emphasize the authority of his title. El, when it stands alone, as opposed to Elohim, is usually translated not so much as just God, but as the Almighty. Notice Isaiah 43, verse 12. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am El. I am Yahweh the Almighty. In Isaiah forty-five twenty-two, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am El. I am the Almighty. And there is none else. In other words, there's the creature-creator distinction. I am God, and there's no other God. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am almighty, I am El, I am God, and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. We're not even like him in in the way that he is divine. In certain instances, God uses both titles in order to emphasize exactly who men are dealing with. You see, one of the things that God is trying to emphasize throughout the scriptures is, man, you who are created from the dust of the earth... You need to reverence me because I am God and you're not. He's emphasizing that distinction. Even though he's intimate with his people, he still wants that distinction. Notice Genesis 35, 11. And God, Elohim, said unto him, I am Almighty, I am El, I am God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and king shall come out of thy loins. Genesis 46.3. And he said, I am El, I am God, the God Elohim. So right there, in that same sentence, you have the Hebrew word El, and then the Hebrew word Elohim. Speaking of the might of God, and the, the Trinity of God, in the same verse. In this way, it's so important, sometimes to look at the Hebrew, and see how it's all fleshed out. Because in the English it says, and he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will make thee of a great nation. So so we have to see that God is emphasizing the Hebrew, because the Hebrew is very distinct. I am almighty, I am Elohim. I am speaking to you, and I'm speaking through you to the nations. Now the next phrase of Genesis 1 continues to develop this creature-creator distinction. Genesis chapter one one. Notice, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heaven and the earth. Man does not create the heavens and the earth. Man cannot create things out of nothing. Anything that man creates, he uses something. I remember seeing a a cartoon of a, a very proud, arrogant man, a scientist. And he was shaking his fist at God. And he was saying to God, I can create life out of dust. And therefore, I am God. And God said, I'll tell you what you get your own dust first. Because that's what God created. Man is not God. Moses says this next, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, I have always asked the question, I've asked it in this company, I've asked it before, why would God initially, God, this is God, the righteous God, the creator of God, the originator of all things, the genesis of all things. Why would God initially create the heavens and the earth without form and void? Why would he cover everything with darkness, darkness on the face of the deep? I've always asked the question, couldn't he have created the heaven and the earth without creating it first in a void amidst darkness? Well, of course he could have. Couldn't he have initially created it, fully formed, and then declared it good? Well, of course he could have, but he didn't, and he didn't for a reason, because God always does things for a reason, and the reason is always to glorify himself. Whatever happens in this world is a glorification tool that God uses to glorify himself. Without the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the deep, bringing light to the darkness, the world would remain in chaos. Without the light of the world, the created order remains void of form and seeped in the darkness of man's sin and rebellion. So God here is making a redemptive point that without the light of the world, the world remains in darkness void of form and without hope. And so he's showing us that it's so important to bring the light of the gospel of Christ to the darkness, to the chaos, to this void in order for the world to continue and be in its redemptive form. So so here God is making this redemptive point, declaring that there will be light to dispel the darkness. And that light is so distinct from the darkness, once again declaring a distinction between not only light and darkness, but between the creature and the creator. Only then, after the light is declared and the darkness is dispelled, does God proclaim it good. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And then we find he divides the light from the darkness. The two shall never be met together. For in him is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus points back to this creative event showing us that within the creation itself he is the preeminent light of the world. And he makes a point to distinguish between the light of his truth and the darkness of man's rebellion. And he does this in John 8, 12. Notice, Then spake Jesus again unto them saying, I am the light of the world. He's pointing back to the Genesis. Genesis. He's pointing back to the beginning of time. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John returns to this distinction between light and darkness, describing it in a spiritual reality, in spiritual terms. Notice 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5 and following. Then this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, notice the distinction. We lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now drawing from Genesis chapter 1, John makes the point in both his Gospel and his letters that the physical creation the physical creation reality has strong, undeniable gospel implications. There's more. Note how between the chaotic world of darkness and the light, the Spirit of God, it's not just there; it's moving. God is moving, and I, I used to, I used to remember a, one of our deacons in the other church used to say all the time, "God is moving. God is moving." He was right. He was right. God is always moving. God is always working. And we find that here the Spirit of God is moving upon the face of the waters. And this idea of moving on the face of the waters, the phrase, the face of the waters, seems to be referring to mankind or men's souls. Because God usually uses waters to metaphorically identify mankind, usually those that are unregenerate. David Gives us that description. David refers to his enemies as great waters. Second Samuel twenty two seventeen. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. In first Chronicles fourteen, eleven. So they came up to Baal Pirazim. And David smote them there, and David said, God had broken in upon my enemies by mine hand, like the breaking forth of waters. Job 2 refers to the enemy as waters. In Job 30 verse 14, they came upon me as a white breaking in of waters. In the desolation they rolled themselves upon me. So these this idea of waters is used as a shadow, as a type, as a figure, a symbol. God promises that the enemies will not be able to destroy his people, referring to them as great waters. In Psalm 32, 6, For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. In Psalm 77, God tells us that the unregenerate of the world will be terrified by the face of God. In verse 16, we read, The waters saw thee, O oh God, the waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. So we see the Spirit moving upon the face of the waters. Notice Isaiah 17, verse 13. The nation shall rush like the rushing of many waters. But God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And then in Isaiah 8, 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels, and go over all his banks. So again, waters is a symbol. It's a type. John again cuts through the metaphors and gets to the point in Revelation 17, 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. There it is. God defining his terms. The waters are peoples, multitudes and nations and tongues. So when the spirit was moving on the face of the waters, he's moving on the realm of humankind. And so when Jesus tells the woman at the well that the water she is really in need of is not the natural water whereby she will thirst again, He's referring to the ideologies of man's sinful salvation attempts to bring order out of chaos. He says, you don't want the water of man. You want the water of Christ. You want the water of life. Because only the living water of life can do what is necessary to bring you life. Not the waters and the ideologies of wicked man, as Isaiah and Jude identify. Notice. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So Jesus is saying, you don't want the ideologies of man. You don't want the philosophies of men. You don't want the salvation program of man. You want the water of life. Notice in Jude, again, he speaks about the wicked, how they're running greedily after Balaam for reward, perishing in the gainsay of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water. No gospel water. Raging waves of the sea. There you get that Genesis account again. Moving upon the waters. Raging waves of the sea. Foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now the implication of Genesis 1 then is that before there is light upon the waters of men's souls, God the Holy Spirit must move. First he must brood over them as the eagle upon her young. Only then, when the Spirit of God broods over the waters, can the light of the regeneration of Christ turn chaos into that which is good. So when you were regenerate, it was as if God was brooding over you. He was taking you under His wings. He was regenerating you, and then He was protecting you. He was the eagle that we are trusting in. And because of that protection, because of that strength, because of that regeneration, we then mount up as on eagle's wings. John tells us, the wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but it canst not tell when it cometh, whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Moses then goes back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 5, and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And that again is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The day is a direct reference to the Lord who is the day star, and the glorious day that the Lord hath made for his people to rejoice in and be glad in it. You know, when we say, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made, you know, you, children sing that song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made. They're speaking about the Lord. They're speaking about the day, the day star. This is the day God brought the incarnate Christ into the world, and day arose to dispel the darkness. And so, we rejoice in the day. But there's more to that day than just we rejoice, and it's a day of rejoicing. The day is not only a day of rejoicing, the day is a day of reckoning. The day of justice and judgment comes when Jesus comes in his first advent. It's the beginning of reckoning. A day of justice and judgment upon the wicked in vindication of the Lord and his people. It is the crushing of the serpent's head. It is the crushing of wicked mankind. It's the day of reckoning. The word Elohim can also be translated as judge. God addresses the nations as the judge of the earth who will bring judgment upon the wicked in his day of reckoning. In fact, the day referred to by Moses is defined years later by Ezekiel as the day when the scales of God's justice are finally balanced upon both the wicked and the apostate, which happens universally when Christ appears at his incarnation, at his first coming. Notice Ezekiel 39, beginning in verse 6. I will send, and this is an anticipation. Remember, all of the Old Testament is an anticipation of what Christ will do when he comes the first time. I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles and they shall know that I am Yahweh so will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. Notice vengeance this is the day of reckoning because the people were polluting his name in Israel and In the future, if they pollute his name in the New Testament age, he will pass judgment. So notice what he's saying. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord. This is the day whereof I have spoken. It's not the day of rejoicing. This is speaking about the day of reckoning. This is the intent of Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. When Jesus himself said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. What does he mean by that? Well, it's the sword of the Spirit. And what does the sword of the Spirit do? It's a two-edged sword. It cuts to life, to the elect, but it also cuts to death, to the reprobate. Part of Christ's commission was to fulfill the declaration of Psalm 2, and Psalm 110. When he is set forth as king over the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron, and when he has given the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, for when he finally comes as it was foretold and anticipated, even as early as Genesis chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning the Lord at his right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. This is the day of reckoning. We live in the day of reckoning. We are the threshing instruments of God to go and thresh, because God will judge among the heathen. And it says in Psalm 110, He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. Now once that victory is finalized in time in history, when the light is forever divided from the darkness and then the darkness and the wicked of the earth are vanquished once and for all, when all the heads of all of the serpents are crushed, Then, as the scripture says, when all things shall be subdued unto him, when the wicked are subdued, when the righteous are elevated, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that putteth all things unto him, God the Father, so that God might be all in all. You see, this is what was anticipated throughout the entire Old Testament from the very beginning, as early as the first utterance of the Creator King, so that men might know that he is God alone, the lawgiver, judge, and king, the redeemer and savior of the universe. We live today in that day of vengeance and reckoning, commissioned as the army of God to declare the gospel of Christ with that two-edged sword, the word of God, cutting one way to the elect, to salvation, cutting the other way unto damnation of the reprobate. We declare that gospel of Christ, but we also declare the sovereignty of his might. And this we shall do throughout many generations, God helping us if we are to preserve Christendom in our day and in the days to come. Amen.